0: Well, we've mentioned it. That's what an artist is supposed to do, is present uh, as a true portrait of of their instincts and what they're feeling. And uh, all the better if it has homosexual overtones, and yet it's not necessarily about that, but th- those things are in there. That's a very evocative, and people need to deal with it. That's what you're offering, something true that comes from your own psychosis.
1: Hello and welcome to Spill Your Guts, I'm your host, Kevin Lane. There are many different indicators in a film that can tell you that you're in the hands of a filmmaker not just with skill and craft, but vision and perhaps most importantly, the ability to present that vision thoughtfully and artfully with what they have available to them. It's why good films and good filmmaking aren't all about budget. Sure, having more money to throw at a problem or more shooting days can be a big help, but an added and said by nearly every independent filmmaker is, necessity is the mother of invention. And the budget becomes a moot point if you don't know where to put the camera or why you're telling the particular story you're telling in the first place. Our guest today has yet to make a film that didn't demonstrate his considerable craftsmanship. He has proven film after film that not only is he a visionary filmmaker, he's also an artful and thoughtful one. And he always, always knows where to put the camera. In this episode, we are joined by indie horror icon Larry Fessenden. Larry's films have always been a more thoughtful breed of genre film. Generally more character-driven and often unafraid to explore weightier themes, like some of his own genre influences such as George Romero. There's a sense in Larry's movies that his work is personal to him and it creates a more intimate connection with the audience. To be clear though, Larry also knows how to scare you silly. In part one of our two-part interview, Larry and I discuss his formative filmmaking experiences, what qualifies a perfect film, Film Criticism, what Larry learned from some of his favorite horror movie directors, and the genius of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Be sure to check out Part 2 next week, when Larry and I delve more into his body of work. Larry is very easy to talk to. He's funny, sharp, incredibly knowledgeable, and extremely generous. His 2001 film, Windigo was a major influence on me early in my career, and Larry is wonderfully articulate about how he works. Okay, beware of the woods, and don't mess with Mother Nature. It's time to sit down with Larry Fessenden. Hey, Larry. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, sir? Okay. I'm curious, like, sort of, for you just as a, a lover of of film and cinema, what kind of your early sort of transcendent movie experiences were? Like, what was the, what's some of the first movies you remember sitting in a theater watching, presumably in a theater, and, and going wow, this isn't just a movie. This is, a, you know, this is, I'm, I'm in this. I'm, it's, it's, this is immersive.
0: Well, my history very quickly is that as a kid in the seventies, you had, uh, and I lived in New York city. So you would watch uh, the horror channel. I mean, I just liked horror. I don't know what it is, but I liked uh, Dracula and Frankenstein and Wolfman. So I would watch those as a kid. Uh, then when I came of age, I have endless memories of movie theater experiences I loved uh, Jaws, so that was I was twelve when I saw Jaws, and that was a moment when the actual culture was in sync with my sensibility. For one year, everyone loved this monster movie, you know, that had a man-eating shark, and I had always loved great white sharks long before it was trendy. Uh, so that made sense to me, but I—it's weird not to immediately have the answer to your question i can only say that when i saw taxi driver i in the theater i was i was transported and i just knew there was something more than even the movies that i had loved there was some something so artful going on and i saw the shining in the theater the first day and i actually didn't love it at first but of course it's a movie that haunts you for the rest of your life and is is part of the fabric of A horror lover's life, anyway. Uh, You know, I remember seeing two Polanski films my brother sent me to see Knife in the Water and then The Tenant. This is when you would go to double bills of recently released films, maybe not the first run of them. And uh, that struck a chord. I just, I could see there was a sensibility uh, to Polanski that meant a lot to me, which is this idea of bringing realism into. Fantasy now, of course, knife in the water is not uh, fantasy picture, but the tenant has uh, visuals and it's very uh, uh, impressionistic. So uh, those are just some things that come to mind. I remember seeing Wait Until Dark uh, in a like just in a unspooling at a you know in a gymnasium type affair, uh, you know, in the middle of the summer. Um, that was cool. I remember seeing, uh, you know, certain drive-in experiences and so on and so on. Just always loved movies.
1: It's, it's interesting because it's like, I think of when I was a kid, I remember like the first movie I saw that made me want to really understand how movies got made. Like, you know, where I, where I was like, how did this get done? Was a Polanski movie. It was Chinatown. Uh, which is mm-hmm. a movie I have obsessed over my whole life and probably always will. I, I think it's like and one of the things I always say to people. For me, about that movie is, I think every film lover, particularly every filmmaker, has a movie that they think of for them as being, you know, this is the movie that is closest to a perfect movie. And for me, it's, it's Oh yeah, Chinatown is 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 that movie. There's many Thank others, you. but is there one that first comes to mind for you as you know, on your list of being like this is like a perfect movie for you?
0: <laughs> well. Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I mean, I, I do think that's it's spoken of that way, uh, and rightly so, and it's just incredible to revisit it. I mean, it doesn't have the sort of the iconic quality of The Godfather, for example. I always say The Godfather, it's on TV, you'll watch it even with ads, even though you know the movie so well. And you have, you know, the Blu-ray sitting on your shelf yeah. somehow. So it's there's a few movies like that that are just kind of draw you in They're So weird that way. And, uh, Chinatown, um, has a, a slightly more, more austere vibe about it. Like you're like, oh, am I going to watch that movie about water and stuff? But the minute you're in it, it's just like literally moment to moment. It's mesmerizing. And that's Polanski's particular gift, you know, uh, And I mean, I I certainly appreciate his entire career. But to me, when they kicked him out of the U.S., that was, or when he ran away, (laughs) um, that was the end of of the golden period of Polanski. And um, that something about his realism and his, there's a spontaneity to his filmmaking that even Marty doesn't have because Scorsese is so much more impressionistic with the crazy camera moves and all of his activities. Whereas Polanski, it appears effortless, but that's that's what's very intriguing. And Rosemary's Baby is another one that's just like a masterwork. But then, you know, look, you asked this question. I mean, you know, then there's movies like Harold and Maude that just, they were, uh, to me, uh, they just, this is where movies were more than a film. They were an experience. They were part of your upbringing. And even Rocky Horror, I mean, you know. So you can tell my age group that that kind of thing you would go to in the theater. And uh, I didn't see everything when it first came out. But in New York, you could see movies that were three and four and five years old. So you could go see um, uh, whatever it's called with Dustin Hoffman, all the uh, the uh, Midnight Cowboy oh, yeah. and this kind of thing. And, you know, I haven't yet said Night of the Living Dead, which was such an important film to me. I saw it uh, on television though, and it was a black and white movie. It was on at one in the morning. I was going to have a little uh, fun time when the parents were asleep, and so I'm watching a little horror movie because it was black and white. And it it suddenly just sort of started to creep up on me that this was not, you know, this is not your father's horror movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, this is uh, there was something visceral and angry and sort of slightly fractured and and volatile about it and it was unrelenting and bleak which you know even uh the movies of my youth frankenstein and so on they, they were, they're they iconic they're they're glorious but they didn't have the 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 weight of their time 1968 a fraught time and
1: uh well and romero was such a political and and thoughtful and artful filmmaker and I think that that's you know I remember for myself seeing Night of the Living Dead and I had seen you know Hammer horror films and the Universal horror pictures and I had seen Freddy and Jason movies I'd seen all that stuff but a friend of mine said have you ever seen Night of the Living Dead and I was probably 10 or 11 years old and I was like I've heard of it I've never seen he's like you've got to see it it's it's really something different than all these other movies you're talking about and I thought, well, you know, how much more different could it be? And I, I remember my my folks were out, and my older sister was babysitting me, and she wasn't paying any attention to me because she was my older sister, and I wasn't, I, w- I was boring. Um, so she was off on the phone or something, and I and I, my dad had a VHS copy of it, so I was like, all right, I'm going to watch this thing. So I by myself, I put it on, terrified, like just. And my friend was right, like, it, it, and I always thought that what was so different about that film was, there's no artifice to it. It, It's, it's, and I think that's what Romero gave it, that documentary sort of very gritty, raw feeling that felt very, it felt very authentically like not performed. And, you know, I watch it now and I can see where the acting scenes are and stuff. But at the time as a young kid, I didn't. And, um, and it was nothing like Freddy or vampires or, you know, these things that, you see that have a supernatural. None of that was there. It was just like these very real seeming people up against this mindless thing. Um, and, you know, I was just going to say, I think I think that that's so interesting. It's, it's fun to hear you bring up Romero because one of the things I was going to ask you about is if Romero was someone that you were a fan of because I his some of his uh, qualities seem to resonate throughout some of your pictures. There's that, that feeling of that. Because Romero in so many of his films will have typically zombies but but other monsters as well and it's still the people that do the fucked up things the monsters just kind of are what they are and they're there's some usually a simplicity to what the monsters are and the people are the ones stabbing each other in the back and fucking each other over to get ahead or whatever and that same quality i think is is in in quite a few of your films
0: yes i feel a deep kinship to his uh, political agenda which he carried on uh obviously to the end and all of his even his later zombie pictures, uh, some people don't favor them, but uh, I, I always saw what he was up to. I mean, he, he really anticipates the internet generation with uh, a later film, Diary of the Dead, which uh, most people don't like. It's actually one that I revisit a great deal. Uh, but also the bleakness of the third one, again, not a favorite for people, but certainly part of the original trilogy. Um, I, I find that just sort of achingly angry, and he's like throwing up his hands. Day of the Dead is what I'm speaking of. So yeah. um, I always had a kinship with Romero. He also made Martin, which is one of the few sort of, quote, realistic horror, uh, vampire movies uh, that sort of treads that line of is it real or not, which, you know, is something that I'm also interested in. I did want to say the thing about Night of the Living Dead that's so appealing for me is the way it opens, as you say, everyday people. But there's this self-knowingness and I have always liked to call it like the fulcrum in my life. When you sort of, it's almost like that moment when you grow up because in the story they say he's coming to get you Barbara yeah, yeah. in in the Boris Karloff voice. And it's a reference to like all of horror history as the brother teases his sister and says, you're afraid of that stranger just over there. And of course then the stranger comes and is a zombie and in fact kills the brother. So uh, spoiler alert sorry. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> I don't think anyone uh, listening to this podcast has not seen yeah. Living Day. So you're probably <laughs> saying
0: uh, yeah. Okay, good. Uh so anyway, I, I that I also think is is profound in that movie that it sort of references its own history. So in that regard it it anticipates Scream and Being, you know, uh self-referential, which *Har* yeah. eventually has has done. I I'm so uh tickled by your initial question, just because it, you know, it makes me nostalgic. Uh, you know, a movie uh, duel is—I mean, obviously already tributed Jaws, but uh, you know, early Spielberg or a certain aspect of Spielberg remains intriguing to me. Um, uh, duel is is a movie. I literally thought the truck was in my closet. I mean, in other words, it was so effective that I was haunted by it. Um, very spare film, still wonderful to rewatch. And I wouldn't be able to uh, look myself in the mirror if I didn't bring up my favorite director, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and, you know, early on, I would see... Uh, well, I saw the movie Suspicion. And I, you know, it's just a Cary Grant vehicle to to a young eyes. But I, there was something about it that really struck me. And I could just feel uh, there was... Well, I didn't know what a director was, but I can say now that I, I was responding to Hitch's wonderful manipulation and his ability to create suspense and unease uh, through suspicion, if you will. Um, and I always defend that movie. Some people say it's watered down because in the end, maybe Cary Grant is totally innocent. But I'm like, why would you think that? He's lied throughout the movie. Why is suddenly the end? What well, It's not a happy ending. He just lied to her one more time. So yeah. I think it's a hundred percent successful picture.
1: <laughs> I love, I, I mean, it's funny. Hitchcock is a director that like, um, you know, some people find his style of filmmaking a bit cold maybe. Cause you know, it's, uh, he's such, um, there's a staid quality. He's, he's very interested in composition and, you know, there's some great camera trickery that he employs it, but I've always been like resistant to that idea of Hitchcock. Cause I remember, At a young age, watching Psycho for the first time and being so affected by the emotionality of their performances in that and the envelope-pushing nature of that film. Not even just at that time. I think if you watch that movie even today, you know, there's this cross-dressing psychopath that's probably got some issues with his sexuality and his, you know, he's probably been abused. And there's all these stuffed implications of that character. No one had done a, a horror movie character like that. And um, and I, I think it's it's odd that people see that quality in Hitchcock that I don't where, I, you know, just looking at the formalism of how he shot would make them not be able to see also, though, the the texture of, of you know, the we've all heard these crazy stories about how Hitchcock worked with the actors, but there's so, so many great performances in his films.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to remember he was a great self-promoter and he created a lot of the, uh, the trouble that he's in, in terms of actors or cattle. I mean, he, he was a humorist as well. He was making fun of things. What he meant is that he wanted ultimately uh, to create the image. But within those restrictions, the actors were essential to him. And he always lamented when he couldn't get bigger stars. And that's why he loved Cary Grant and uh, Jimmy Stewart because those were sort of, they were stars. Also, Hitchcock has some of the greatest female characters in the history of movies. Over and over and over, he gave tremendous attention to them. Now, he may have been a creep with Tippi Hedren. There's no question about him, uh, you know, being of his generation. And But the whole point is that his psychology is in his films. He, there, there's no more a raw, honest filmmaker. Now, the fact that he believed in the craft of filmmaking, yeah, I agree. I think some people count that against him and it's not realistic or there's no naturalism. But on the contrary, he's he's creating an elevated world that is deeply psychological and deeply, in many cases, paranoid. And he gave tremendous insight uh, to you know the paranoid mind by having such control over the medium. So I'm a big fan of Alfred and um, uh, he's one of the great, cinema artists without a doubt
1: who just so happened to work in the genre as well which is well and he never (laughs) felt
0: respected you know when he got the letter from francois truffaut that said we believe you're an artist and an auteur that was when that idea was being invented uh and we'd like to interview you apparently hitchcock cried because he'd spent his whole life not feeling respected as an artist he just knew that he was a popular figure um and he became increasingly popular with his, when his TV show hit. But um, he was really a master of the medium and a master of... I mean, he was ahead of his time in so many ways. He was a master of, of the uh, performative you know, reputation of the director. I mean, people didn't know what a director was until uh, Hitchcock sort of <laughs> enforced himself on the public with his persona and his image. Anyway, a fascinating story, a 20th century artist in all those ways, self-reflective, crafting his own reputation. Uh, And I think some people take that uh, too literally. Yeah. I've just been, um, I've been watching uh, Elvis Costello, who's one of my favorite artists. Uh, And he's another one that sort of built a, a persona. And now he's been entrapped by it ever since. But, you know. Uh, it's cool to see these guys working with the the medium that's run wild now with the social media, but these are sort of pioneers of creating uh, personas and pursuing their art.
1: It's funny because you're describing Hitchcock that way, and I, it sort of makes me think of that Romero has a great deal in common with Hitch in that way, and that Romero was a guy that... Um, and I, I, George became a friend of mine in the later part of his life. We were writing a film together just before he passed away. And, um, as I got to know George, he had this, um, I don't know. It was like a, 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 a an underbelly about that. He didn't see that, that he was considered a real artist, that he was this guy that made zombie pictures and, and Scorsese was talking about Romero. It was a tribute or something to him. It was when George was still alive and Scorsese made a comment referring to George as one of the great American O-Tour filmmakers. And George was, mine was blown by this. He was just like, what? what? He's talking about? He said that about me. What? But like, he couldn't, it just was so alien to him to hear him refer to that way by, you know, and someone he admired so much. And I, I don't know if they knew each other, but I'm, I'm assuming maybe they did. Um, but it was there's a
0: great story about them uh which is they both would go to this library on 42nd street across from uh the museum of modern art uh and and that's where you could rent movies uh you know in the old days you could rent a movie or whatever uh, at the library take it out and project it at home uh And they now I'm going to blow the story because I can't remember what the movie was. It might have been a Bergman film, something what we would both laugh and say, oh, well, that's quite sophisticated. Not only did Romero love this movie, but so did Marty. And sometimes Marty would go and say, I'd like to take it out. And it was already out. And he'd say, who the hell has that movie of all things? And it was Romero. (laughs) So they had they had this strange early history together. Uh, And then I don't know how they fared as they. But it's nice, as you say, to see well this is why scorsese is such a, a a treasure to our culture because he he loves movies and he can speak about them and and he could recognize uh yeah authorship where it was not being acknowledged yeah. by the, the the public you know
1: what do you think sort of is the difference between say uh the notion of an of an auteur filmmaker and and the guys that uh, you know people would think of as being of course capable filmmakers, but more commercial filmmakers. How do you sort of define those two different types of of filmmakers?
0: Well, I I do think the word auteur can be useful in trying to describe a consistency of point of view in, in the work. Um, And as you say, there are very good uh, working directors. I mean, you know, is Tony Scott an auteur? Uh, There's a, he has a certain style that you could recognize and, and he does probably. So, you know, it's a little, one thing I'm not interested in. I always say I like movies, uh, not films, uh, but I also use the word cinema because I think cinema is sort of referencing the actual art form, which is butting one shot up against another and the effect that has. And one reason I keep talking about Hitchcock is that he was able to articulate that. He was literally the best Teacher of film that we've ever had. I mean, maybe you have a <laughs> childhood teacher you like who told you a few things about jump cuts, but Hitchcock put it out there, and uh, it's it, it served his needs, but um, meaning it, it it elevated him. But he it just shows his love of 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 the medium. So I'm just saying I do like the word cinema, but I also like movies. So I don't need to obsess over authorship. But come on, uh, Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, these people, uh, Scorsese is obviously an example. He was, he continues to be pursuing the idea of uh, spirituality, um, sometimes literally Catholicism, but he made Kundun. he made Silence. These are movies uh, that are beyond just a simple, you know, what's the priest going to do today? So, and then obviously Mean Streets is about, do I do I have to take care of my am I my brother's keeper? In other words, the Harvey Keitel character is he how responsible is he for uh Johnny Boy, the De Niro character, who's irredeemably an asshole? So this is what Marty's really about, and that's the authorship, not to mention his stylistic choices, which are consistent and he builds on uh of of sort of a violent editing, um I mean, one thing I love about Scorsese is he's like, it's a tradition to try to make edits invisible. Whereas he says, I actually want you to feel the edit, which I love. Um, And in a way that speaks to Hitchcock's style, which you can feel the filmmaking. And that's why some people resist it. And they say, oh, well, it's just artifice and drawing attention to itself. But no, it's it's like saying, when I look at a, you know, a a Jackson Pollock guy, I, I can see that somebody put paint on the thing it's just a different perspective on how to present the arts. Um, Whereas we have also celebrated Polanski, who is a more mm, invisible filmmaker. And that's an absolute pleasure. And of course, a lot of indie films aspire to a kind of a realism. Uh, So all of this is welcome. I think, you know, Mike Lee, well, what, what, what's he doing? He's, he's making his actors believe they're those characters and so on. So, Lots of uh, but authorship, I don't know. It is what it is. I think it's just a way of talking about a consistency between uh the work. And um there are some, as you say, there's some working directors who uh really just know how to tell a story. And that's uh wonderful
1: as yeah, well. Yeah, I was having this debate with a friend of mine who's much more cynical than me, I think. Um he he's uh one of those very kind of how to I don't want to give too fine an example because he might know I'm talking about him. Um, uh, I can already
0: imagine the type to be honest,
1: just the way you're he, setting it up. He, he he was going on about how Ron Howard isn't a director he's fond of. And I said, what you? why don't you like Ron? I love Ron Howard. Ron Howard's great. He said, I said, what don't you like about Ron Howard? He said, well, you know, if I watch a, scorsese movie or a brian de palma movie or an oliver stone movie a polanski movie. he started naming carpenter Wes craven remember he just naming all the directors he likes he goes i can say i would be able to tell you within two minutes this person made this movie because there are certain stylistic choices that are consistent throughout their body of work that tell me who that filmmaker is you know very quickly in that film he goes ron howard's movies have no continuous style they're just well crafted but there there's no heart in them and i was like I don't agree with that. Um, I think you're, I think you're, I think that's, to me, that's um, looking at the fact that Ron Howard's a very good entertainment type director, I guess. I think a lot of his films are, are set to entertain, but, but I think there is a, a, a way that Howard kind of gets out of the way of a lot of the stories he tells. He doesn't, we talk about how Hitchcock, you know, these kind of guys, you feel them in the movie in a very specific way. I think Howard's style is is to be less visible than that. And I think that's just what works for him. And I don't think that's any less valid.
0: I appreciate that you bring up Ron Howard because I was looking, you could tell when I was speaking, I was trying to just come up with an example and Tony Scott wasn't a very good one. Ron Howard is an excellent example of yes, a working uh, director whose interest is in, in, in the craft, uh, and the specificity of that story yeah rush in rush one of my favorite movies he you know with Nicky hauser uh you know he brings in um you know his camera style is very trying to evoke the uh the car the cars and and the car racing and all of that so he has a very specific style apollo 13 is a very poetic film it has tremendous heart but it's much slower uh and, and Frost Nixon, I think is a incredible movie and, and does the job precisely. So you're right. He's like a working man director. He's not imposing his vision. He, I feel it shows a certain confidence and a certain humility, which in a sense is his authorship. Uh, you know, and he also can, f- I think uh, falter. I don't think the whale movie worked. It was sort of two movies. I'm talking, I don't even know what's called heart of the sea. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's fine, but you can say a number of filmmakers stumble in one way or another. But uh, to, to support your your case, it's very interesting. Ron Howard has a, a master class um, in which he reveals his style. And as I say, it's extremely um, practical, methodical, and I would argue humble. He's, he's in pursuit of, of the truth about the material. And he's in a process of discovery. Remember that he's also an actor and he probably brings that to his uh, work. Anyway, I, I, I actually admire Ron Howard. You too. It, I think. I, would, would I call him an auteur? I might actually not. So yeah, it is. No, funny. It's,
1: it's, it's interesting. Cause I think it might be getting in the way for a certain type of film lover to sort of look at his films and go, well, they're mainly interested in being, you know, entertainment and commercial, like movies like backdraft or whatever. And I'm like, well, there's no mandate that a, a director's kind of prerogative isn't first and foremost to entertain an audience. That's perfectly valid pursuit as a filmmaker is, is to do that. Um
0: Well, what do you think Hitchcock's doing for one thing?
1: Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's I mean you watch a movie like The Birds, which has, of course, Hitchcock's standard amazing control of composition and shots, and you know, I mean, the birds is one of my favorites in terms of but I also love in the birds how he's got these scenes. I mean, the women in that movie rule that world that that movie set in. You've got oh, yeah. uh, what's the actor's name who was the main the main guy in that? Um, can't remember the dude. Name. What's I that? Don't know. The guy. Yeah, the guy in the birds. See, I don't even remember his name. I, I who cares? I should yeah, know.
0: Suzanne Plachet and uh, Tippi Hedren. Yeah. and then the mom. The mom is the scariest. Totally, and they're amazing the
1: because they're 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 also <laughs> like these very powerful women. They're kind of. There's some sass there. You know what I mean? These were these were powerful female characters in a movie that I don't think gets celebrated for that enough. And I think maybe that's because in that film you have a scenario where the real life overtook the film on some. There's so many stories about Hedron and Hitchcock's dynamic on the shooting of that movie that I think people overlook how female forward that movie is. I watched it again recently and I was like kind of giggling at some of the scenes where the women, the, the guy is such just a over the top kind of hunky fixing things guy. And the women are, have all the fun dialogue and all the great little beats and all the nuance. And he's just like the dude. Always.
0: It's so clear that Hitchcock loved women. He, I mean, from Tallulah Bankhead in in lifeboat. Uh, do I have that right? Uh, to, uh, you know, obviously Grace Kelly, who he adored. I mean, she's the coolest thing in uh, rear window. Uh, you know, and she's basically just figuring out how to get her man uh, the whole time, and, um, and and on it goes. I mean, he really worked with, and yes, as I say, he, I think he was obsessive and sort of lost himself occasionally, especially with Tippi Hendren. He was obviously very controlling, but in a very, I mean, he was very controlling. But it's fascinating to see that a lot of that was. How he wanted to present the women and make them uh, really excel in their in their roles and so on. Anyway, great, great fodder for, for contemplation, but not just uh, a cookie cutter analysis of Hitchcock being oppressive or something.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. it's funny because you watch something like Vertigo, knowing the background that we know about Hitchcock now, and it's like. What a ballsy movie for him to have made. <laughs>
0: like, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually, this uh, these are all inappropriate conversations. But, you know, Woody Allen, his movies are about, uh, well, there's often reference to younger women. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into his daughter and, and that scandal. But in any case, he clearly likes younger women. But he's telling us that in his films. And he also is preoccupied with the idea that you can get away with anything. Crimes and misdemeanors misdemeanors um so there you have an artist actually confronting the themes in their life and, I, and this is really what you want from an artist so they're very candid and we should cherish that then we can make judgments about them as people on the uh as well but but when artists are offering themselves which i'm just referencing you know vertigo is clearly a very personal film yeah um It's actually not my favorite. That's the funny thing. You know, it's often teetering on the best movie ever made list. And I'm like, "Mm, not so much for me. I prefer Psycho. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, but who am I? I just like movies. I don't like cinema.
1: (laughs) I mean, I I love Vertigo because there's it's a funny thing. I was I went through like a hammer period again, and a little while ago, where I started, I'd seen them all when I was younger, but I wanted to watch them all again. And there's so many of them that have these, there's, I love the garishness of the sets and the, uh, but there's such artifice to the Hammer films, right? And there's so much a part of them. And you've got these great performers in Cushing and Christopher Lee and these amazing, and we were talking about Donald Pleasance earlier, you know, these great British actors who really give a gravity to characters like Van Helsing Oliver and Dracula. Reed. And yeah, right. Like there's Oliver Reed. Amazing. Like the werewolf. Yeah. I mean, it's all these great performances and, and, but I love the artifice of those movies. And it's funny now when you read a lot of film criticism from contemporary critics where they talk about artifice, like it's a bad thing. And I'm like, that's so strange to me because I think of a movie like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you mentioned earlier, a, a, a movie I adore and um, Tim Curry in that movie in particular, to me as a young man i remember being like who is this guy this is crazy amazing <laughs> like he's he's a force of nature in that movie to me um it's such a good incredible performance and uh you know tim curry who is a gay person playing this role that that i think it's an interesting film because i know so many kind of macho guys guys type people that have enjoyed it and 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 i'm like that movie was a a a game changer in that way and that i think it's so unabashedly a good time that whether you're a jock or, you know, a gay person, that movie can call to you and find a way to connect to you. And, and uh, you know, I, I think Rocky Horror is is on that level, one of those movies that kind of crosses those those film lines of, of who the target audience would be. But but I think of the- Oh, the, without
0: a doubt. You know what it's I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, I never even knew Tim was gay, which sort of speaks to maybe when I was growing up, The character was what mattered. Yeah. It was just, uh, and of course he was poking every button, you know, guys (laughs) and girls thought he was hot. And that was sort of the point. And that was just what made it so wonderful. And as you say, liberating in some way uh, for a whole generation, just uh, all the crossing of wires, sexuality wise, I think it was a very important fun movie. Plus just the songs are so good. Yeah, it really is. It's just a, 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 a toe tapper.
1: I stole a line um, from that movie that I use every time, um, someone gives me an unsolicited opinion on one of my own films. There's a part in that movie where, um, Curry's made the, you know, the hunky Frankenstein's monster that he makes. And, uh, the, the girl says, ah, oh, he's all right. And he turns, he goes, I didn't make them for you. Like, so whenever someone,
0: <laughs> that's good. Yeah, yeah. That's a good quote. I'll turn to them and go, I we... didn't
1: make it for you.
0: Yeah. I yeah. think that's how we all feel. Ultimately as, as filmmakers, even, even the greats. I mean, I see people bitching about Marty's next film, killers of the flower moon saying it's too long. And I'm sorry. It's like, these are people who are probably probably watching The Last of Us, which, if I understand correctly, is 10 hours. So, I mean, how is a a three-and-a-half-hour movie? I just, people want to bitch about stuff. Why don't you wait to see the movie? And actually, maybe you won't like it because you're predisposed to think Marty's a windbag. But he's always made longer films. And I love Woody Allen saying, and I'm sorry, I keep talking about Woody Allen. uh, No, I love Woody Woody Allen. saying. um, Yeah, and I, I just feel like he's literally being removed from from platforms. I can't even get a Blu-ray of Broadway, Danny Rose, what's going on. But, um, uh, Woody said, look, I can't make a movie more than 80 minutes. I just don't have the attention span. Whereas look at Scorsese, he's the opposite. So I just like acknowledging that their personalities in the arts. Uh, people have different, uh, appetites, so to speak. And, uh, and that's, what's glorious. That's yeah, what I was we just have talking to celebrate. To-
1: a friend of mine about that, because he ha- he was talking about how his, his kids are all obsessed with TikTok and these, these videos they watch on their phones and stuff like that. And and I said, yeah, but keep him He's like, they're going to have no attention span. I was like, keep in mind, though, that kids also now will binge watch eight hours of a new TV show they like. And and, and that's good
0: to know. You're you know right. what I mean? It's good to so be it's, reminded.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for Stranger Things. I know. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great show. Right? Well, it's like Harry Potter. People actually read books back then.
1: I know I you know it's funny my my husband showed me Harry Potter for the first time like a year ago and I'd never seen those the films I was too old when they came out and I was like ah those are for kids and so he said well maybe I think you'll love them because I, I love fantasy movies and I love Lord of the Rings and all that stuff so he said you got to check these out so we sat down and watched them and I really enjoyed them I didn't one they're much darker than I realized um they, they have no trouble killing off beloved characters. In fact, to the point where I was like, stop killing everyone. Um, but uh, there's so many great actors in those movies. It's like a rotating cast of great British actors. Everybody's in all it. All the
0: British. I mean, Gary's in it. Everybody. and yeah, Alan Rickman crazy. and so on. And all the old timers. And the old gals. But the point is, is uh, no, I, I advocate. Uh, I did read some of the books to my kid and whatever. But the real truth is, of course, following those movies and seeing those children grow up and seeing the 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 style of the filmmaking change from Chris Columbus who was making kids movies to the real uh struggling with the maturing of the of the characters to the more and of course Alfonso Cuarón made the third one which was kind of this wonderful fulcrum into yeah. something much deeper which is not to diss the early ones, but now the kids were growing up and a great director came in and just gave it a little bit more flavor. Plus, there's a werewolf. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, uh, and forgive me, I can't remember his name, but Newell, maybe. Uh, he took it. Yeah, he took it to the end or two more guys took it to the end. Yeah, it was Mike Newell and
1: David Yates, I think, finished up the series. Yates
0: finished it up, which, you know, believe me, my kid was growing up. And so seeing Harry Potter really deal with uh, uh, well, puberty issues as well as finally getting to the truth of uh, he who can't be named, all of this was very, very profound. And and my kid was blessed his childhood, he had Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter yeah. movies, and he grew up with them. So,
1: yeah, totally. I mean, Roger Ebert had a great quote where, um, uh, he was talking about this was not long after the Twilight movies came out and he was not a fan of those films. Um, this isn't to diss those movies for people who like them, whatever. Uh, I was yeah. funny for uh, little side remark about that. But I remember all these when those Twilight movies came out and all these hardened horror fans were going, these movies are bullshit. There's you know, these are not about vampires and werewolves. And it's a prime example. I was like, these movies are not for you. <laughs> They're yeah, not for exactly. hardened horror fans. These are for teenage girls like this is their love. Yeah. Studies.
0: And actually, this is fantastic that the teenage girls are watching vampire movies. So shut up. Yeah, exactly. The only thing I will say, uh, first of all, I like the first one. I remember specifically it had a flavor that was, and I think it's because that was a, a, well, it was an auteur, the director. Yeah. No, but yeah. I mean, uh, she did have a point of view and she chose the right cars and the right colors. And she cast the the dad and just some other, uh, it, well, she cast everybody. That's the thing about these series the first director needs to be credited with the casting. Yeah. Uh, which which had uh, longstanding uh, repercussions. My real regret about those movies is the way the werewolves change. They jump into the air and then CGI turns them into dogs. And I cannot approve of that. I don't I'm like, going to be a little snobbish about it. I don't that. like
1: werewolves <laughs> when they are uh, just turn into wolves. I like it where it's a wolf I don't man. That's, absolutely. For me, that's how it should be. Um,
0: that's uh my, I've just made a werewolf movie, and I can assure you, you I am go. following in the old tradition,
1: yeah. That's the way to do it. When I mean, we're gonna get to that, um, because I'm excited to hear about that. Um, no, but the Ebert quote was he said, Um, there's two movies in theaters playing right now. He said, One of them is the new Twilight, one of them is the new Harry Potter. And he said, Now, whereas the new Harry Potter is about the challenges that come with becoming an adult and taking on responsibilities in a new way, and figuring out who you are and how you fit into the world, and you know the loss of innocence. He said, "The new Twilight movie is how difficult it is to have a boyfriend." Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like,
0: <laughs> "I love Robert Roger Ebert." <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, uh, but he he spent the entire uh, review of Habit my early film uh, complaining about David Lynch. And it's very awkward because I love David Lynch and I didn't need to. Yeah. You
1: said about lost highway in it, right? Wasn't that.
0: Yeah. He was saying Pheasanton really makes his movie deliberately ambiguous. Whereas old David Lynch, who knows what he's up to. And it was just like, I, I didn't need that in my review. I, I, <laughs>
1: He
2: gave I don't him wanna... a review, though.
0: That's
1: good. I
0: mean... No, it's a great review, but it spends half the time dissing David Lynch, which just made me uncomfortable. <laughs>
1: which is strange, too, because Ebert has went on from that point to really love movies like Mulholland Drive, which he gave a rave review to. Um...
0: That's interesting. I'm actually glad to hear that because I always thought that was a strange thing for Ebert not to appreciate one of our great auteurs. Uh, but maybe, maybe one movie just annoyed him. I don't.
1: Know. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, I read that review. Um, cause Ebert's might go to film critic because it, of course I don't agree with every review he ever wrote. No, you're never going to have that with any film critic, but, but I think his passion for film and his knowledge of film and his talent as a writer is prevalent in his reviews in a way that you don't get with a lot of these people who grew up on writing blog reviews and stuff like that. Um,
0: I, I would argue that the way Ebert writes his review, and you can, I mean, you understand this because you are a fan, but uh, I would ask someone to read his review. And what's fascinating is that he actually invites you into the experience of seeing the movie and sort of like a wide-eyed um, child, he sort of says, and this happened, and then this happened. And and he's not judge- judging. He's inviting you to understand the journey that you might go on. And therefore it's a very gentle and, and useful. And I always try to tell people that that's what a critic is supposed to do. They're supposed to help you uh, encounter new work and, and in a way broaden your uh, experience. And it's ironic that he's also responsible for thumbs up, thumbs down, which one might say is the problem with uh, film criticism. Now is the, assertion by the author of their opinion and mm-hmm. their taste that's that's of very little value to be honest yeah uh you you want to address the art in the terms that the artist uh created it and whether they've succeeded in their mission
1: it was something i always admired about ebert too was that as a critic there weren't many critics at that time who who took horror films seriously and ebert wrote proper reviews for movies like Evil Dead and Dawn of the Dead. And he he would review genre films and give them favorable reviews and give them the same thought he was giving to big movies. And, there, you know, you had people like Pauline Kael who were like, every horror movie she hated and just ripped on, be like, this is garbage, this is, you know what I mean? And Ebert didn't do that. And I always admired that about him. That he, I, I disagree with him entirely about how he feels about video games, but I don't think, I just don't think he really knew what he was talking about there, but... um
0: and 3D. Yeah.
1: Didn't he also hate three D? Yeah, he hated it. <laughs> hated it. Yeah. Which um, is fine, but the once
0: again, there's good uh occasions of three D. Oh, for follow. sure.
1: I can't the Avatar movies don't work as well when they're not in 3D. That's a prime example of right. it. Right. Um and I love gag 3D. I love the old horror movie three D where shit's flying at you. Like I love gaggy horror three D movies. Those are the best. Like what is it? House of Wax, oh, I think no. was three D.
0: Well, yeah. How about a fucking creature from the Black Lagoon for heaven's yeah. sake?
1: <laughs> yeah 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 I mean it's it's funny because I think it was when Ebert hated that that 3D movies were always dim because of course the way 3D works you're going to get uh, less exposure or, or less brightness in the in, in when it's projected and and that pissed him off because he was like you have these beautiful looking movies but they're all bleaker and darker and grayer now because of this tech that's being for and, and he was right at a point there that every movie that Holly put out all of a sudden had to be 3D and sometimes it was yeah. like this movie doesn't need to be 3d like I remember watching Ridley Scott's movie, it was it Prometheus, in 3D? And I was like, I, I love Ridley Scott. I, like, the first Alien is one of my favorite movies. I think it's we talk about New without movie. a doubt. Yeah, it's masterpiece. But and I love Prometheus. I think it was a vastly underappreciated film. I think it was a deeply philosophical movie. And I think that's where it threw people off because they were like, what's all this? He's asking all these weird questions about what is mankind? How do we get here? Just show me the aliens. And I was like, no, this is great. Like I want, you know, you talked to, I meant to bring this up really when you were talking about day of the dead. I love that movie for Romero asks like big questions in that movie, like huge questions. And I love when filmmakers do that when they're willing to just kind of like, get into it with the audience about big stuff, complicated, difficult philosophical stuff. And just kind of like, let's, let's, let's get into the weeds with these questions and look at them and, and have our characters discuss them and try to figure out why they're, you know, there, there's that great scene in day of the day where he says, um you know, the, the Jamaican, like uh, the pilot is talking to the, the main character and, he says, you know, what are we what are we doing down here? We got, a, you know, 100 miles of records and we got the books and records of all your favorite movies and all everybody's accounting. And, but what does all that mean now? It doesn't mean shit. It doesn't matter. It's All that's pointless now. So now what we should do is go to an island, make some babies and just try to enjoy what what we can while we're here. And it's kind of like, You know, people might say like, what is this shit? Just get to the the good stuff. I'm like, this is the good stuff. You know, we've seen zombies a thousand times.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, the reason this is so joyous, uh, horror of the genre, is that it always asks the big questions. And then you're also able to watch giant ants, you know, yeah. while you contemplate, <laughs> uh, you know, the end of the world, as you say. Yeah, well, that's a pretty standard topic, but sure, we'll throw it in. But, uh, well, I don't really mean that. It's not thrown in. It's what the movie is about. Yeah. Godzilla is about the, the A-bomb, you know, but yeah. it happens to also be about a big creature that can step on buildings. And that's fun to look at.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: (laughs) it's essential. It's a talk about letting the medicine go down a little easier, but you got to deal with the big issues. Otherwise, what's the point of the arts? Really? I mean, diversion is one thing, but uh, and and it doesn't mean art has to be serious. Uh, Even, I mean, a Fred Astaire movie that's you're seeing craft and decision making and uh, and some other form of artifice that is uh, delightful.
1: Yeah. I think of like in the eighties, particularly kind of not, I don't think people think of it as being necessarily a, a great time for cinema, but it certainly was for horror. <laughs> um, you know, there was a lot of great horror, like reanimator being one of my favorites, the Stuart Gordon film, which I think is such a, uh, a, one hysterically funny, but to, um, uh, you know, a great riff on kind of the, the, even though it's based off the Lovecraft story, it's, it's a Frankenstein story. Right. And it's like yeah, a great course. take on that. And, uh, and also happens to be hysterically funny. I mean, I mean, you, you, did you know, Stuart?
0: Uh, well, I would met him and, and we talked, we tried to, well, we did, uh, some audio plays together. I say some, we did one and then we talked about another. Uh, but also we tried to make, he came to glass. Eye picks and wanted to make, uh, a low budget movie. Um, his idea of low budget was different from mine, but fair <laughs> enough. um, it was wonderful. I mean, we had a script, we had everything It just didn't get off the ground. I mean, this is the real story of independent filmmaking is how many movies actually aren't made. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons my aesthetic is just do it. Uh, You got to do it or it won't get done because, and yes, you're going to compromise and yes, you wish you had uh, more resources, but you either want to, Make that movie or you just want to talk about it and take meetings about it. Now, I think it's a trap a lot of people get into. Um, now, I understand saying just make it is is already an expensive proposition. So I don't really have the solution to the whole thing. But that's been my North Star is uh, let's do this somehow uh, so that it actually gets done and you can see uh, what your vision looks like. it's it's a very weird art form because you can't practice it. Yeah. Um, You know,
1: even, you know, when you're talking about doing movies the way, and I've made movies that way where you have, you know, you're pulling favors and you're getting your friends out to do things. They don't really know how to do and set up lights. They don't really know how to, where where does this go? And, you know, I've, I've worked that way and, uh, and I've worked, you know, where I had more resources and, and experienced crews and I've done both and they both, have their merits. I like that when you work with the experienced crew and things like that, you generally have more time because things move faster. And that's good because time to me is always the thing that you're up against the most when, you, when you're when you working with no money. But on the other hand, my first feature, I didn't know how good I had on this. We had no money, but my team that made it with me and they were all talented people. We were like, let's just take as long as it takes to do this. So we just did it on weekends and we shot it over the course of like five months. And that's a lot of that's, you know, you add that up, that's a lot of shooting days. It's like twenty-five shooting days, I think, by the time we were done. You don't get that on a on a even on a couple million dollar budget movie anymore. You get fifteen days or um
0: Well, I was uh at the Spirit Awards for my film Habit, and this uh, this woman came up who worked at a at a cool company. It wasn't really anything bad that she said but she gleefully said how many days did you take to shoot it was it 18 16 just wanting that standard story of uh of adversity and i said well actually uh we shot over 45 days
1: yeah, <laughs> because yeah, of what yeah, yeah
0: just what you're describing i had a crew of four people <laughs> and we'd always say is anybody have a job tomorrow because otherwise let's let's try to get scene two we'll shoot from 11 to one and then you know uh and so we did it in our own time which you're not allowed to do on a real movie uh and um i agree it it was an enormously unusual experience and one which i'll always cherish
1: it's great too right because in a scenario like that you're not in that pressure cooker that you're in when you're doing a feature and you're you know let's say you're on location and you got whatever 15 days to shoot your movie like it, it can get pretty intense when you're like, no matter what, I got to finish this fucking thing by the 15th day. There's no more money. This isn't some studio movie where like, if we run out of money, it's like, fine, they'll be grudgingly write a check. Like I've got 15 days to make this film and that's it. Uh, 15. If I was lucky on a couple of the movies I did. And, uh and it, it, it's, it, I kind of loved that thing of having the extra time, but it wasn't that it cost more money to have it. It was just because I was working with a small enough group of people that it was like, well, you guys want to go an extra two hours? You know, it's like, it'll be an 18 hour day, but we'll get this done. Yeah, let's do it. You know, we're, we're back to work on Monday, but fine. Let's just do it. You know, like it was, there was a freedom to that, that I loved. And, and working with a group of people where it was like the limit of what we could do was just like, well, how can we make, you know, this, I remember we were doing this one shot where the the camera had to, it was, we were doing on a steady cam and the camera had to come through a living room and follow a character as they walked around and we get to shoot the shot. And I, w- I hated that, that we were, we were on location. There was a, a big dinner table that the actor had to walk all the way around and it was taking too long to get it, to get it done. Because I was like, he used to walk all the way around this table. It's such a boring shot now because we have to come with them all the way around this table. And my producer, not a guy with any film background, this is his first time producing a feature, Said to me, well, "Why don't we just take the table out and the camera can come through the table? And the audience has seen it's dark anyway, and the audience has seen that table there so many times with the movie, they're probably going to figure it's still there." And I said, well, "That'll never work. That's ridiculous." He said, "I think it will. Let's just try it." And the DP was like, "I think he's right. I think this will work." And I was like, "People are going to notice that there's no table there, and we come flying through it." Like, so we try it. Work perfectly. No one saw the movie ever noticed that the table wasn't there anymore, and we came right through. And I, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where I'm like. I was being so literal about it and it just took, you know, a great idea can come from anyone though. And I think you learn that when you make these tiny little movies where everybody's giving an opinion because you need to work that way. You can't, you can't afford to be, (laughs) hold on, you know, this is my picture and I'm, you know, I don't want to hear any of that stuff. And I've never found that's a good way to work. I know that some directors like that approach. I'm terrible at that. I kind of want to hear from everybody. Well,
0: now I want to see this movie and obsess over the table. (laughs) I know. It's bizarre. When you watch it,
1: it's because it's such a... The table was this big, cumbersome thing on the location that there was all these scenes at the table, so we needed a big table. But it took up half the fucking room. So when we came time to do this shot where we didn't need the table, I was like, this table's (laughs) killing me. And that was when the preview was like, let's just pull it. People have seen that big table so many times, and it's such a dark shot they won't notice that we just flew through it, that like it all of a sudden disappeared. <laughs> and it I think perfect.
0: that should be the, the name of the movie. You should change and it to the table. It was
1: called The Quiet uh, Room. And it was like this crazy. And it's the other thing that's funny was it was my first feature. And I actually had the, the I don't know if I was stupid or brave, but I had this idea I was going to make this very impossible movie to do on with what we had, inexperienced actors and all this stuff. But it was about this guy who becomes obsessed with his best friend And uh, and wants to sort of be him, and it's about the group of this friends that they go to this like sort of cabin in the woods, classic horror movie setup. But the thing that's evil doesn't come from outside; it's in their own group, and it's just this friend who snaps and starts to go crazy, trying to obsess with trying to become his best friend. Who who it's always toyed with whether it's a homoerotic thing or whether it's that he wants to be him or does he just want to be with him? And but it was and the the ending was so bleak because he murders all the friends, and at the end it's him sitting by himself. And kind of the one thing he's the most afraid of throughout the movie is being alone. And at the end, he is. But he's got all his friends propped up, their corpses, and he's talking with them and sort of <laughs> pretending like everyone's celebrating him. And we screened it for people and everyone was just sort of like, <laughs> at the end. And I remember my producer turning to me and being like, <laughs> everyone's going to think you're fucking nuts with this one, man. Like, and I was like, that's the point, right? I mean, that's, but I think as I got further into my career, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but I started to go, well, maybe I should tone it down a bit. I don't want people to think this or that. I, I and, and I had to stop myself from doing that. I'd be like, no, that's not my job to worry about that. I just have to tell no. the story I want to tell. And if people associate that I'm a fucking nut job for telling that story, that's okay. That's fine. You
0: know? Oh dude. No, I actually, no, this is the whole, I mean, we haven't really gotten into it, but that certainly would be the theme of uh, that. Well, we've mentioned it, but that's what an artist is supposed to do is present. Uh, as a true portrait of, of their instincts and what they're feeling. And uh, all the better if it has homosexual overtones and yet it's not necessarily about that, but that those things are in there. That's a very evocative and people need to deal with it. That's what you're offering. Something true that comes from your own psychosis and then whatever your your own profile, that's, you know, it's actually not the point. Anyway, (laughs) it's, um, I mean that, that can be a curiosity. You can reveal that in interviews, but the reality is that the work speaks and, um, and sometimes, um, I have a friend, he's a performance artist and I would document him. And, uh, he always said, if you're not a little embarrassed by your work, you probably haven't revealed enough of yourself. And I certainly believe that. And that's what we're saying. Even Hitchcock within the vernacular of suspense and thrillers, he was, being candid about uh, the preoccupations that he had. His obsessions.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: His obsessions. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting too, to sort of, and, and now we're actually getting to, to your film specifically here, but I, I went, I watched your films kind of in reverse order to prepare to talk with you. So I started with depraved and worked backwards. So the last one I watched (laughs) was no tell. No telling, sorry. And uh no. so I, I thought we'd start there with talking about your body of work because it's the start of your future film body of work. You had all done all kinds of shorts, and I was baffled when I saw that they all had Hollywood movie titles. They're like Jaws and like face in a <laughs> crowd. And I was just like, did you just like do your own little takes on these movies? Or cause I, I couldn't find some of them, but uh
0: Face in the Crowd was entirely my own title. Uh it was about a a young man who comes to New York and is lost in the crowd, uh, as he tries to find himself. And he's an alcoholic. It's very abstract super eight film. Uh, but anyway, I didn't even know about the real movie. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is funny. Uh, I also thought I invented the jump cut. Uh, I thought, <laughs> wow, you can have the camera in the same place and then advance the story by just taking the best parts of a certain sequence. And you know, it'll have this fractured quality. I've invented this thing. I'm going to call it the jump cut. And then I read about Truffaut and I, or uh, Godard. I was very upset. Uh, <laughs> Jaws is nothing but a tribute. And I wrote a script in which the shark wins. Uh, and I was going to make an animation with these little dolls called G.I. Joes, which are a foot large. And that's why the boat I made was six feet long. Uh, and I made a shark out of paper mache. Um, which was a mistake because it's supposed to go in the water. So, yeah. uh, you know, a <laughs> lot, of, lot of problems, a lot of problems. Did you but, say you were um, like 12
1: or something then when you did it?
0: Well, yeah, it was 1976. Yeah. I was born in 63, so I was 13.
1: Um, yeah. Did you I saw that little clip of it. It was on I want it. What movie was it? On Beneath maybe? Was it on Beneath, the Blue Rick? Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um Oh, you can see the boat there. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. That's
0: a wonderful documentary because I just took my son downstairs in the basement of my parents' home to show him the boat for the first time, and then he had a camera, so I like that interview on a personal level because he just filmed it spontaneously. Oh, that's and fun. I perf- and I performed spontaneously, and it's a nice synchronicity between his camera work and his ability to focus well, and <laughs> me just being uh, being silly, but it wasn't staged or pre pre-ordained. Uh, I thought
1: my um, I'd envisioned that it was like a thing where uh, who was it? Scream Factor, I guess that put out beneath. Um, yeah. Where they said to you, well, can you go and film your the old ship? And then you guys went and did that. So it's funny that that's not how that came about. Um,
0: no. It's sweet. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, um, I did lots of things. I always just like movies. I had a Super 8 camera when I was young and what I did learn, once again, this is modern kids won't understand this but it's always a discovery and I realized that where the camera is is actually what affects the storytelling and I learned this by just I had a super 8 camera and I would film things like parties or whatever was going on and I was very voyeuristic that was my uh, approach I would just enjoy filming things that were really happening um, and then realizing that I can become the storyteller by choosing the details that I'm I'm showing this all sounds very obvious, but this is literally how I learned to love film because before that I was an actor and I liked doing theater. I didn't really, I loved movies, but I didn't think about what I could bring to that. But then when I discovered this and that's why I love Hitchcock, because I know that he makes his choices by deciding how to reveal information. So all of this was my journey. Um, And so I did a lot of stuff, and I did a lot of video documentation of performance artists, and I actually shot weddings, which I enjoyed because there's basically a drama unfolding in front of you, and then you have to choose. And of course, the irony is I would always turn people's weddings into slightly nerve wracking, scary. Uh,
1: (laughs) So I have to tell you this; it's so funny you bring this. I started my career shooting weddings, and. I always tell people this story because people are like, "Oh, weddings! This is a horrible gig." I was like, "No, I loved it." There was this one oh, wedding. Great. There was this one wedding we were at, Larry, and it was—you couldn't script this shit. It was like everything went wrong at this wedding. Like the the <laughs> the bride was having an affair with the best man. It came out at at the wedding. The mother the mother of the groom hated the bride. Was death staring her through the whole ceremony? Huge ceremony. had lots of money all this shit is happening. We're getting it all on camera. And my, my partner in my company at that point turning, he's like, this is a disaster. I was like, this is great. Like We had just, you know, everything from this, this bizarre speech where the, the, the best man is clearly talking about sleeping with the guy's wife that is getting married at this thing. And I was like, this is like a soap opera, or something. This is it was amazing, and I was, yeah, and I still have that incredible. footage, and I like I cut it together like a soap opera. It's just like me, maybe, and I, but I learned some interesting stuff there. It was like I learned that I could cut to a shot that that where the uncle who was actually just bored, but if I sh- but if I put it in the composition at the right time, he looked like he was reacting to things that he wasn't actually reacting to, and it was that juxtaposition of, well, the imagery is. Well, take on the effect, even if it wasn't really what that person's reaction was, it takes on that meaning if I cut it in that way. And I learned that doing wedding videos, you know?
0: Yeah, which is funny because you're sort of describing what is also a classic, you know, the idea of the soup. Uh, You have a picture of a man, just an image, and then you cut to soup and you think he's hungry and you cut to a baby and you think he's uh, having affectionate thoughts about the little child uh so that's a famous editing exercise and you you discovered it on your own with the (laughs) the sleepy uncle (laughs) Uh, but but that those simple ideas is what i loved about discovering movies without the benefit of premiere magazine or any other thing that we now take for granted and the kids watch remember when i was young you never knew except for exceptional things like the godfather you didn't know what movies were making at the box office. Uh you had no infusion of the capitalist model into your entertainment. You just, you know, you believed uh, in the pitch and the hype and the sting is going to be a good movie to see and Butch Cassidy was going to be great. And uh you had your affections, but you weren't saying, oh well, uh Maverick uh, got, the, you know, is brought film back because it made two billion dollars and all this. So uh there was, you know. It was just a different time. But the joy of that is that you could discover how to make movies, uh, on your own and, and really sort of own your relationship right. to the medium. Uh, I, when I was little, cause I started loving handheld camera, I decided that movies were sculpting in, uh, space. You know, because the camera going around was had an expression and it had meaning. And so this was my notion. Well, the irony is that Tarkovsky said movies are sculpting in time. Now he's famous for very, very long shots that develop and you know that become sort of breathtaking as you realize the shot's gonna keep going. And that was his thing. So he was talking about sculpting in time. Now he might actually have had a more profound observation, but in either case, both of us i love the idea of movies as sculpture and i always say we're going to build our movie when i talk to my collaborators i speak about building the movie because you're you're building the shots you're building the props the images and so on anyway i like the idea of seeing it as a like a a physical piece of
1: art like an architectural kind of approach yeah Yeah. exactly yeah it's interesting to think too i mean uh you think of sort of your first experiences when you start to figure out. I, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. I, I think the book is called "The Eye is Quicker." The, the editor is a famous editor. Uh, he did no, like it's the
0: blink of an eye. Blink
1: of an eye. Yeah. What's the name of that editor? What's the editor's name? He's so famous. He did like French Connection. Walter Merch. Walter Merch, Yes, that book was the first book, film book I remember reading at a fairly young age. And I, I tell every young filmmaker that asks me for advice to read that book because i do too yeah i do too i think it's such a it became like a somewhat of a bible to me at a certain point as a filmmaker because i i think if you could understand that book to me isn't just for people who want to be editors either that's for anyone who wants to make films um i agree because understanding juxtaposition and the way shots can exist and the way you can create or disassemble time using your shots and, and, and in the editing room, but also in, you know, of course it comes, starts with planning what you're going to shoot. So, um, yeah. you know, it's so interesting to me to think of how important a book like that was for me at a certain point where, you know, one thing I didn't, I, I had no idea how to edit a movie and, and I learned by doing it. And, uh, I, I'm curious for you, you know, because you've, you've taken on so many roles on your films, you've been, you know, the producer, the actor, the, you know, what sort of, did you have any kind of formal training as an actor, as an editor, as a, in any of these roles, did you go to school or anything for any of this stuff?
0: No, no, unfortunately not. I went to NYU, uh, but just the college and I never went to my classes and I filmed, uh, I lived in the East village during, you know, sort of performance art and rock and roll during those days. Um, Keith Haring and, and, Basquiat and, you know, very vibrant scene. AIDS, also a lot of, you know, scary stuff. But the point is, is I didn't really go to the school, um, but I discovered the video department. So we made films in super, uh, 16 millimeter, and that was great. I did a class like that. And then I also discovered the video department where I could make long form sync film, sync sound projects. So I, I sort of veered off into my own thing. So, I don't really credit NYU as teaching me the craft, uh, but it was, it was a great place to rent equipment from or whatever, uh, borrow equipment, and I was able to be in the downtown New York scene. Uh, as far as the books I recommend to the young filmmakers, uh, Hitchcock Truffaut, which is a in-depth discussion of every Hitchcock movie by the master himself, But you really understand how he makes his choices, how he builds the scene, the emphasis, the casting, all the things. He's very candid about his successes and failures. And it's fun because sometimes his interviewer, Francois Truffaut, doesn't agree. So there's just a lot there. And it's a fun book to have because you simply can watch the movie and then you have seven or eight pages from the creator of it talking about it. The other one is Blink of an Eye for exactly what you're saying. Uh, It's a beautiful book about the craft of film and there's great respect for cinema. He's also a sound designer, so he understands all the aspects of post production. And he says, I mean, among many, many other wonderful things, he says this thing I think is so fun. He says, very often in a shot reverse shot edit, you can determine where the edit should go by when the actor blinks because they finish an idea in their performance, and they'll often blink. And he'll say, they have, in a sense, ended their shot. Uh, and it's remarkably true. In fact, I get a giggle every time and think of him fondly because uh, it's so uh, true. The third book, uh, there are many like it, but uh, the Sidney Lumet book called Making Movies. It's just a very... Now, here's a, that's another uh, auteur who's not given credit, like we were sort of saying about Ron Howard. But made so many great films, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, um, Devil, Devil Knows You're Dead and what have you. Uh, did he make Network? Anyway, he's uh one of the great filmmakers. But um but in a weird way, not fetishized like Marty or uh some of his I mean contemporaries. I think he certainly
1: loved he's by, respected yes, and loved. Yeah. But but you're right. He's not. He, there's not a public awareness of him the way there is someone like Scorsese or right or Oliver Stone even or someone like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he still uh, he has so much to say about the craft of filmmaking. Like he is in Twelve Angry Men, which is, takes place twelve actors in a single room. Uh, through the course of the movie, he changes the lens size. So there's there's a simple idea that it actually. Uh, you know, a, a first time filmmaker might at least take counsel from that or watch the effect of it, because a long lens gives a different feeling from uh, a wide angle. Uh, anyway, those three books, because he says another insightful thing. He says, I always figure out the scene on my drive home. <laughs> and it's an important thing to realize that even the greats, even those who have made true classic films, uh, it's it's a process. There's yeah. no set. and And, you know, In a way, it allows you to forgive yourself, but also to know that this is life. It's an absolutely moment-to-moment struggle to make as few mistakes as possible when you're making a film. And what is a mistake? That's also unknowable. If, If your idea of a mistake is that you veered from your plan, then you're not open enough to the process. Because actually, your plan is certainly your building block, but it may not be the only way to do something in the moment when weather or bad acting or uh, broken (laughs) equipment to get in the way of uh, the best laid plans. Anyway, those are my three favorite books. There's probably many, many, many others to uh, draw from.
1: The third one I always tell, well, specifically writers is the Stephen King book on writing, which I agree. I think it's so, I mean, it's, I remember reading that book because I think King is so it's, he's become so iconic that it's, it's easy to forget that King is, a writer who's very, uh, wonderfully honest and open about his process as a writer. And in and, and that book, he's, it's such a humanized version of this godlike writer to people now. And I remember reading just him talking about like, you know, how he would get stuck and what he would do and his, you know, the, the tricks that he's, that he's sort of employed. And, and it was all very normal stuff that I was like, oh, so I was like, King is a, he he has a his own like he has writer's block and he has a, he's written stuff where he's like that was shit and like he's been self-conscious about it and you know like anyone and i think it's that book is is way less formal than i thought it would be it's it, it's very it's like you're just getting the chance to sit there and chat with Stephen King about writing and and what a valuable thing that is
0: i love his process he writes early in the morning uh until and, you know, he started out writing in the laundry closet, I think it was. And, uh, you know, he would write from, I don't know what he says, 8, eight o'clock to 1 p.m. And then he's he's done. Um, and then, of course, the reason, and then he, he has another thing that stuck with me, which is when he finishes a book, he literally puts it in the drawer and he won't read it for two weeks or something. Yeah. Just as, as you say, these very practical, they're specific to him and you can take or leave them, but you do have a sense of a methodology. Um, And then the reason I would argue uh, to elevate what elevates that book is that also he deals with his alcoholism. Yeah. So that's sort of an early part of the story. And then in the end, the extraordinary Stephen King like accident where he was hit by a car on a street in Maine. And so this book that is really an examination of a process of, you know, art making is also somehow a riveting existential story of, of a man's life. So it's really, I agree with you. I, I wish I'd brought it up because I have also recommended that. Yeah.
1: To, uh, people. It's a great. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, I think it's so interesting because as you just nailed it, I think it, it, it's, there's also this character study within the yeah. confines of being a book about, about a craft, but, but it's, uh, you know, and it's as humble as honest as, as a book can get in that way. Um, from from yeah. one of our great you know talents uh,
0: that's that's still going. I'll say one more thing. I really like Save the Cat, and it's um, the guy is annoying. He's <laughs> constantly harping on how bad Memento is, which is demonstrably not true. It is a great film. That's cra- he, I, Does he really say that? I love that movie. It's all he ever talks about in this book uh, because it doesn't follow um, the structure that he's advocating so hard. But like so many opinionated blowhards, his particular perspective is, is worth absorbing. Um, I, I've never been one to follow rules until after. I like to read my work, uh, which hopefully comes out intuitively and then sort of analyze it And, you know, you get a little thrill when you go, oh, I guess I do have three acts. I didn't plan on it, but isn't that convenient and comforting? And whatever. Or you go, oh, look at me. I'm going rogue. One way or the other. uh, It's good to know the rules as you break them more.
1: Yeah. Stuart Gordon said that to me once early in my career. He said, Kevin, figure out all the rules to your, we're talking specifically about horror, but he said, figure out the rules to your horror film so that you know all the rules that you're going to break. Um, And and I thought, you know, that makes, you know, you think of a film like reanimator that doesn't follow any rules. (laughs) It's a crazy movie. Um, Yeah. And I think that you're, you know, that's, that's what you're talking about is the same thing Stuart was talking about. Sort of, you know, it's, you want to know the rules because you want a guiding light, but you also need it so you can divert from it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. It's it's true. No telling. So let's talk about this movie. You know, that. This was a movie that was, first of all, hard for me because I'm the most wimpy person about stuff with animals. So the animal stuff was I was like, oh, even though I could tell it was a puppet at times and whatever, I was still like, oh, my God, you know, and my I would say to, I was like, there was a time where the, the dog scene I had to, like, look down because I'm I we have a dog and I'm Seth with this He's like my kid. said to my husband. Just tell me when the scene is over and I'll look up again. And um And it's funny because it led to me having this question I wanted to ask you about this movie is it's funny to me how I can watch the most brutal things get done to a human being in a movie and not flinch. And I know how these things are done and I know they're not real. And I know you didn't hurt animals to make the movie. I know it's all fake, but still the suggestion of an animal being harmed maxes out me and I have watched the most gruesome movies. Why do you think that is? Is that as an audience we can sit there and watch people be tortured and be fine with that. But the suggestion of an animal being harmed can make the most hardened horror fan look away.
0: Guilt. Yeah. (laughs) No, I, I I don't know. I mean, it is ironic. The thing about that movie was the worst movie you could possibly make uh, as your first film, because ultimately it's unpleasant and the very people that you are in cohorts with which is to say animal lovers animal rights people vegetarians and vegans uh are going to find it in a way the most difficult to watch so you've just alienated your allies (laughs) And, and the rest of the world is like why the fuck should i care about this stuff so uh yeah not a good start to my career and i was resoundingly mocked uh, for the film by critics. And even the guy who made run Lola run, I went to a film festival and I remember him leaning over to me and going, you know, at, at dinner after a wine or two and going, you know, that was crap or, or whatever he said. Oh, wow. It was scarring. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, but, you know, I, I actually stand by the movie, both the politics, which I still believe to this day, I do think we have too many pesticides in our farming and, uh, Farming is uh, increasingly under duress. I think uh, animal experimentation, uh, you know, needs to be looked at and the greater morality of all of that. And I also like that it's about science versus art, so to speak. She's a painter and he's a scientist anyway. uh, And, but then, you know, I was very influenced by Sam Raimi and, what you might call real horror films so there's a lot of fun camera work in these things called the board cam which was being used in um, Evil Dead 2 and uh I guess the what's the you know the Cohen brothers film with Nicolas Cage um and so that was just a fun stylistic choice I still think it's quite nicely designed
1: It is I mean but, I you know, I I thought you know it, it was kind of in this comes up again in your in, at a later point in your career, but but it was also sort of a, an exploration of sort of that classic kind of mad scientist trope of of, of sort of this Frankenstein like figure who uh, who starts fucking with nature and, and of course you know is doing things he has no right to be doing, um, right.
0: but it's sanctioned by society. I know, see, because yeah. In the, in the interest of human health, so then you just I'm trying to ask the question: Where do we draw the line uh, of morality? You know, is it literally go right up to the edge of the species and then not one single uh, creature beyond? And even there, he sees attacking uh, or he's using mice and rabbits. But then when it's a dog, we object. But then when it's a cow, is it okay? Because we would have eaten it anyway. You know, I'm trying to uh, examine all this. I don't have any answers, of course. Uh, but this preoccupied me at the time I became a vegetarian. I, I read up a lot of books about all of these uh, environmental woes that we were bringing on ourselves. So it was my first stab at uh, preaching right. uh, through horror, which, you know, I, I it kind of sealed my fate, I think, uh, because I did become, at that time, obsessed with the environment. It became an expression of all my... Feelings of alienation I had as a kid, uh, which were probably for other deeper reasons, but in the end, I always objected to um, authority figures. And this was oddly an expression of saying that society had been built wrong and without a big enough tent uh, to our moral concerns. So that's sort of, and you know, I've sort of pursued that ever since climate change and other things.
1: Yeah, there's a moment in the film where. Um the, the main character um, Jeffrey, I think it's his name. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. he says uh, something about, well, these animals are, uh, you know, they're fulfilling a very honorable purpose and that they're kind of, you know, they're dying to help mankind. And I was like, it's almost, um, it's funny to see that crossover in, in the kind of logic that when I was a young person and I've been an atheist since I was a kid, my dad's an atheist. So I grew up with a very strong, not anti-religion, but, but my dad but at a very young age was very clear with me that he did not believe in anything to do with God or Christianity or anything. And I think it had to do with him growing up in a very uh, oppressive religious situation. Yeah. Um but I remember thinking, you know, I I I've always had a great love of animals and I've been obsessive of studying animals and seeing them and, and, and watching them in, in the wild and you know, going camping, just seeing a moose was the closest I got to something that felt like a religious experience to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so when I heard that line, I was like, it's funny how science and religion meet in the middle and almost nothing, but, but that kind of thinking the hubris of like that, these animals are, are a lesser thing or uh, you know, that, that, you know, to me, it's like religion talks about animals that way too. Well, they don't have animals, don't have souls and shit like that. And I'm like, it's, 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 it's still all just kind of ego, isn't it, to, to think that way? Yes,
0: yeah. that's what it is. Narcissism is the word I use because I continue to use it in my critique of humanity. Uh, we're just an incredibly narcissistic uh, bunch, and we have excuses for all the atrocities uh, against uh, nature, and then obviously women and minorities and all of the very specific things that are being talked about, but still uh, never getting at the real root of, I think, the toxin in the human animal is this uh, unbearable narcissism, uh, which crushes empathy, which, speaking of Roger Ebert, he said cinema uh, is an empathy creator, which I, I thought it was an awkward statement, but I absolutely believe in what he's saying, which is that, uh, watching movies um, offers you empathy because you have to relate to what's on screen. And I would even gone so far as to say it. Uh, I, I don't dislike video games. I don't even have any skin in the game, but a video game you're, well. you've made a video game. Well, that's all true. But even there, <laughs> you know, uh, I've basically brought a cinematic mind to my offerings there, but uh uh all I'm getting at is that a video game, you're you're affecting the uh the activity on screen. So you're engaged, your ego is in fact invested. Whereas a movie, you have to just sort of empathize because you're you're watching somebody and similarly you're watching the artist who's created that somebody. So you have to shut up mm-hmm. and just uh try to understand. So I, I do agree with Ebert. Uh, but we're talking about empathy um, through discussing narcissism, through discussing animal cruelty.
1: <laughs> yeah. what's well, interesting because I remember, I don't remember what year it came out. Brokeback Mountain, the year that film came out. And that same year when it lost to that picture, it lost to Crash, which in my mind still to this day, a far less effective movie because- Oh, I, you
0: mean the the Hollywood movie, Crash? Yeah. Not the yeah. Cronenberg one.
1: Cronib- oh, yeah. The Cronenberg one's great. Uh,
0: yes, it is. <laughs> No, the Hollywood movie is, is well, it's fine, but it's just a
1: somewhat It's trivial. like an infomercial, though. It's just like the well, whole movie yeah, is it's... just racism is bad, and then a bunch yeah. of primarily white actors being given these dialogue scenes where they kind of uh, over the top, really. But they're still all very self-involved people, and they don't really change by the end of the movie. I was like, this movie is right. very confused about what it's trying to do and say. Whereas Brokeback Mountain, to me... Ang Lee really accomplished something wonderful. And that I remember when that movie came out, going to see in the theater and as a gay person, being very proud of the fact that I thought it its themes and it, it its storytelling was universal. And then also having yes. a heterosexual friends say to me, the the kind that were the kind of guys that I was surprised to hear this from, I cried in that movie. And I was like, that's the kind of storytelling that I that I think where you where human beings can go and show up to a movie and go. I don't necessarily relate to these characters in these specific ways, but my empathy is being called to task here. I have to... This director is asking me to tap into that part of me that is an empathetic being and go on this journey with these people. And I thought Brokeback Mountain did that beautifully.
0: I couldn't agree more. It's just an incredible film. And, you know, it's also the dedication of these two actors. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much I really want to get into this or you want to get into it, but, you know... I've often seen in our current environment people disparage so-called straight men playing gay characters, and I I use that movie as an example of, first of all, don't we want straight men, if there really is such a thing, <laughs> yeah. uh, to uh, to to make that leap and 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 be that bridge for an audience, you know, like Yo Jake, baby, Yo Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, and let him be, uh, uh, let him invite us into this story. So I think it's actually uh, a vessel to uh, bring the bros in, as it yeah. were, uh, to, to uh, but beyond that, the whole point of acting is to, uh, is to understand and to portray things that you're not. Otherwise, you're not an actor. You're just the thing, in which case, let's make a documentary. So, yeah. This is a whole problem with our current conversation.
1: I think, you know, I lo- I, I've I i brought this up with multiple different people because I, I love when people make sweeping statements that I get to challenge because I'm a dick that way. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, a colleague of mine recently made a comment along the lines of what you're talking about, which is, you know, it's, I think it's, it, you know, it's a, Hollywood's responsibility now to cast gay actors in gay roles. And I was like, let's reverse that. <laughs> Gay guys, gay men can only play gay roles now.
0: Well, exactly. Thank you. And I'm like, that's not fair. That's not fair. (laughs) And yeah.
1: And incredibly limiting.
0: It's incredibly limiting. And uh, the irony of that also is think how long gay men have played straight men in uh, the history of Hollywood. So there again, my little... perfectly PC friend, what are you saying? It makes yeah. no sense. And the more we delineate between ourselves rather than find the fluidity between ourselves, the more we're just going to remain in a, a crisis. And like I think just...
1: I, I kind of agree with it because I, I on one level where someone, a writer I, re- I read was talking about this exact topic and he said, look, I get why the gay community was a little bit steamed at Harvey Milk being played by a heterosexual actor that i i and i kind of get that because i'm like okay where it comes to the history of the gay community and and and, and its misrepresentation on so many levels you know you look you yeah. talked about the aids crisis for example what community was harder hit by that than the gay community and Already now, a lot of young gay men know nothing about it because there's a real m- lack of education, I think, moving forward and keeping that on the well, forefront. Well, the kids
0: have no memory at all. They think the last thing that happened was two days ago yeah. on TikTok. Yeah,
1: right. And I think it's interesting, you know, to look at them like, okay, what, what today, if that movie got made, the, the, the film Milk, I think a gay actor would be playing Harvey Milk. I don't think Sean Penn would get that role today. But that's about the only time where I'm, where I think I would have that opinion is yes. If you're getting, uh, making a movie about a prominent gay icon, maybe it's just sensitive to hire an actor that can relate in that way.
0: I, I agree precisely because I think in our current moment, it is really the topic of conversation and it's like, Oh, come on guys. Let's find, uh, somebody who fits the bill completely. Uh, But I actually want to defend that movie because it's one of my favorite movies. And it's like Sean Penn's greatest performance. He's incredible. And and that was because he brought empathy. He fully committed to it. I have no question in my mind that he believed in every way uh, and that he enjoyed uh, kissing. What's his name? Oh, I going to make a funny joke. Yeah, James Franco. Who wouldn't? (laughs) So uh, I just... I, I see where you're going. And I do think that now when you make a film, you're going to maybe want to consider that because we are trying to become more enlightened and inclusive
1: representative, but I just, yeah,
0: yeah, and representative, but I just want to make sure we don't sort of forget the pleasures of, you know, watching Dustin Hoffman play uh, the rain man. I mean, I don't know. Is that condescending? Maybe it is, but let's just say when I was growing or up, tootsie. that was uh, <laughs> or Tootsie dude, Tootsie holds up in my opinion it still holds up and it's a feminist diatribe in the best way and uh it's and great it,
1: Jessica Lang is so fucking great in that so movie. fucking
0: great everybody yeah. down to uh, uh well you know obviously Terry Garr and uh and good old Bill canceled Murray um <laughs>
1: Be sure to check out part two of our conversation with Larry Fessenden.
2: You've been listening to Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and co-produced by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and in incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously produced by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at, all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Post comment, share, like. But don't forget that good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.